Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to your donations at japanbyrivercruise.com and the generosity of our governmental sponsors. This is a message from the Japanese National Tourism Organization. Visit Japan! One of the unfortunate effects of Japan's inbound travel ban was that only 2,900 foreign visitors entered this beautiful and magical country last month. That's a drop of 99% compared to the year previous. Frankly, it's been a disaster for the tourism industry, and so we have a special message to foreign guests considering making Japan their next travel destination. Come now. Like, seriously? Please? We have no idea how those 3,000 people slipped through the net, but they did somehow, and we'd like you to find out and copy them. If you can manage to get yourself through immigration, we'll feed you conveyor belt sushi and show you temples or whatever else you want. You can pose with all the tsukiji fish you like, hell we'll even take the picture for you. True, there's never been a harder time to get here, but hey, there's never been a better time to be here. There's just something about there being 99% less of you that makes the country nicer. So visit Japan! and join the 1%. Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Oli Horn. Our guest this week is an investigative journalist and the author of Tokyo Vice and Pay the Devil in Bitcoin. He's a longtime Japan resident, and he holds the distinction of being the first ever non-Japanese journalist at the Yomiuri Shimbun, which makes him a real Gaikokujin pioneer and hero senpai figure to many. We should also mention that here at JBRC, we consider him our number one enemy. Thanks for being here, Jake Edelstein. You know, it's always nice to be with your enemies, Sana. <laughs> Thursday night or Wednesday night or Friday night. I don't even remember what day of the week it is anymore. And on this week's show, the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan becomes the news when the Tokyo Olympic Committee forces it to censor a parody logo that they didn't want published, thereby ensuring that tons more people got to see that parody logo that they didn't want published. Plus, Ali's got your weekly river cruise recommendation. Ali? Yes, this week we're recommending a cruise which enters the Edogawa via the historical Edo Bay. The cruise offers a popular Matthew Perry cosplay option, and even though it technically qualifies as an ocean cruise and not a river cruise, we are making it this week's pick because at this point, it seems like it might be the only way that you'll get Japan to reopen its borders. And with the state of emergency lifted nationwide, Japanese river cruise fans are tentatively returning to the water. We'll talk about how one river cruise provider is encouraging potential passengers by rerouting their tour to include, just in case, stopovers at all of the docks that are close to COVID-ready hospital emergency emergency rooms. But first, Soap Talk. Jake, you are the white guy that knows the most about Yakuza in the whole world. It's a, it's a dubious honor. But, you know, it's kind of like knowing the most about a, a, you know, a nearly extinct species of horny toads, because they're not going to be around much longer. And also, <laughs> toads don't have ten fingers. Uh, yes, yes, uh, unless they've been very bad toads and disloyal to the organization. <laughs> Most of our guests and ourselves as well, we always talk every week about all of our projects or all of our work that's been kind of put on hold because of the pandemic. I'm wondering, you've got a pretty high high profile project. Is there anything that you're legally allowed to tell us about some major projects you have that might be coming back online? 
Well, let me say, on the as the production of Tokyo Vice, the TV series based on my first book, I am so low on the totem pole that I think people forget that I exist. So I'm authorized to say very little. But I can tell you what I've seen in Hollywood Reporter and other things. Production is planning to resume. I am looking at scripts as we speak to make sure that they are reasonably authentic and possible in 1999. Yeah. So I think things will go forward. So I am happy about that. Um, I can also say, because it's public record, that I am going to be played by Ansel Elgort, yeah. teenage teenage heartthrob who my daughter knows, but everyone over 25 or 26 has no idea who he is. Well, I'm, I'm 36 and I liked Baby Driver. He was Baby Driver. Yeah, he was great in Baby Driver. And uh, I think he was in Divergent and other films as well. I've watched all of Ansel's films. Let me ask, uh, did you get to meet Ken Watanabe? I have not gotten to meet Ken Watanabe yet. I actually, I once took a role playing a rapist in a movie, and the thing that convinced me to take it was that it was a Ken Watanabe movie. Also never got to meet him. Uh, can I just congratulate you, Bobby? In our 37 episodes, this is the quickest you've managed to make uh, talking about a guest's work about yourself. <laughs> so well done. Thank you. Bobby, did we get any mail this week? We did. We got a mail from Brian in Fukuoka, one of the original Brian Bryans, and he writes, oh, this is the message feature. I seriously thought thought this was for sending faxes seriously brilliant our message feature on japanbyrivercruise.com is a button that says send us a fax and i'm honestly i'm not sure why brian would think we would set up an actual fax number like what exactly about this particular podcast gave him the idea that ollie and i might go to ridiculously unnecessary lengths for an in-joke that really only the two of us might enjoy well it's possible if you if you have a subscription to eFax, which I do, because I still need to talk to Japanese government agencies to, to, to set up a link so that people can actually fax you something, which would either come to your fax machine or come to you as mail, like a, a PDF of the fax. So it, it could be done. I actually have a theory that the, like some Japanese businesses, they maintain having a fax machine as their only way of corresponding, just to prevent people like us who can't be bothered to do that uh, from ever contacting them, right? It's like a filter yeah. for morons. And we have found, Bobby, that <laughs> since we changed the messaging feature on our website, we have got radically less correspondence. So yeah, maybe... almost, almost none. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we should have this as an open invitation that any listener that would like to send in any degree of praise uh hit the fax button and you'll be surprised with quite how accessible we've made the medium i think it works great as a filter although i can't really tell for sure if it's changing it to a fax that reduced our amount of messages or the fact that we are extremely aggressive and antagonistic to anyone who messages us <laughs> well we never thank them for saying anything nice do we <laughs> you know i uh, i'm dating a pro dominatrix i could have her clients contact you because they seem to really like being abused so <laughs> and at this juncture, let's take a look at the news. Bobby Juno, what's in the news this week? This is interesting. This is uh, something that I think we might be uniquely... <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad this is interesting. It's interesting we're, for we're, a change. We're, di we're dignifying our listeners with something worth listening to for a change. Good on us. Jake, <laughs> since you know the most about it, would you mind kind of explaining what's going on with this foreign press story this week? Sure. Um, the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan has their own in-house newspaper called The Number One Shimbun which has been around for decades. What is this club, by the way? Is it like a private members club? Yeah, I think of it, it's actually was originally a, a, an actually a press club for journalists after the Second World War. Um, 
you know, to have an office to work in, to send their dispatches. Um, and it has evolved into a social club with has a smattering of journalists left. I mean, it's stated purpose is to um, fight for freedom of the press and to disseminate information to the public <laughs> and work in the public interest. But I mean, to be, to be fair, that's a pretty that's a pretty lofty mission statement for an organization in Japan to fight for the freedom of the press. It's like, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I like the, you know, we, we have this like manifesto that's very wonderful every now and then when I'm arguing with people at the club about what we should actually be doing, I remind them like, you know, isn't this our purpose? Isn't this our right. mission? And it's kind of hard to argue with, uh, you know, but the, the manifesto gets treated with the same, you know, with the same high regard that the constitution gets in Japan. I mean, it exists and sometimes people look at it, but uh, in day-to-day life, not so much. And no so doubt this constitution too was written by the Americans. No, that is not true. Uh, it was <laughs> written by the Japanese in accordance with the Americans and the Japanese all voted on it and elected the politicians who said yay to the constitution. Okay. <laughs> so I'll, I'll stop you there. Okay. And so what's this club's present role? So the club's present role is a venue, it primarily serves a function in Japan as offering a venue for people who wouldn't normally be heard to um, to speak to a wider audience beyond the Japanese press. And there are stories that the, the Japanese press doesn't want to handle. Um, and the FCCJ is, you know, opens their doors to them and gives them a venue. And when the FCCJ holds a press conference, then sometimes the Japanese press is forced to cover a story that they may not want to normally cover. Yeah, um, I think the Japanese news loves to kind of take a look at how foreign news services and outlets are portraying Japan. The reason that I remember hearing about the uh, FCCJ was the Shiori Ito rape case. She gave oh, a press yes. conference. Uh, she gave a press conference. Actually, I, I think I was, I think it was the first one of the first reporters in the West to write about that story because it's complicated and yeah, it, it's. Uh, this when, was a woman who was a journalist who was date who was raped allegedly. by a politician. Yeah. yeah, we have to throw in allegedly there. Shiorita was allegedly raped by the biographer of Prime Minister Abe. So someone who's very close to the Prime Minister, um, the police actually issued an arrest warrant for for the man. And at the last minute, they decided not to arrest him and let him go, which almost never happens. So many people thought there was a political interference, interference involved, and there probably was. So when she won her lawsuit um, against the man who raped her because the, the prosecutors wouldn't take it to court. Um, but you can sue someone for damages in civil court. She won there. And the accused rapist had a press conference and she already had a press conference back to back. And, you know, that was a great thing to have at the FCCJ. I would have to say that the FCCJ originally refused to give her space to speak. And she ended up speaking at the Japanese... Um, uh, court press club about her um, about her request to have the prosecutors review their decision not to prosecute. So it's one of those times where the FCCG should have stood up to bat, but actually the Japanese press did a better job, and Kyoto News wrote about it. So the Japanese I, press I, doesn't totally suck. And do you reckon the Japanese press were more supportive in this instance because she was a journalist? Um, I think that I think that they offered her the the forum and that no one wanted to really write about it, but because Shukan Shincho, which is a weekly magazine had done such a smashing job of collecting all the evidence and showing that there was definitely um, police and bureaucratic interference in the investigation of her rape, that they had to write something. And Kyoto News, which um, sometimes really has guts, did write about it. Mm. So, you know, I, I, 
I, I know the, the Japanese press tends to get criticized as being weak and spineless and always obsequious to authority. That's not always the case. It's often the case. Yeah. Well, the press conference that she did with the FCCJ was the first time that the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan popped up on my radar. And I mm -hmm. think I had the sense that, you know, they might have their problems, but they are an organization that was doing important work in Japan. Yes, they are. They are doing an important work in Japan, and they are definitely a place where people can go um, when where they get shut out by the other media out of many reasons, fear, conflicts of interest. Uh I mean, I've stuck with the organization that long because I think their mission is, is important. So they've become the news this week. They themselves are the news because the number one Shimbun, which is their interior newspaper that they circulate, right? They right. had a cover that was a parody logo of the Tokyo Olympic logo. Yes, and it, it's very much shaped like, a, a, like the structure of the coronavirus, which I thought was brilliant. And it says under the, the beautiful uh, sort of blue and white design, you know, COVID-19. And I thought it was great because it, it's a wonderful commentary on the fact that the Olympics and COVID-19 are really greatly interlinked in Japan here. One is everybody understands, everybody knows, to borrow the phrase from Leonard Cohen, everybody knows that one of the reasons Japan was so slow to deal with the problem was because they wanted everything to look like it was great so that the Olympics could be held no matter what. Right, right. So. The Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee started putting pressure on FCCJ to take this down, to not publish this, um, and they ended up withdrawing it. And the reason right. that the president of the FCCJ is citing, Ali, are you ready for this? Are I'm you ready so for excited. this? They say it's not the pressure, it's because of copyright infringement. Ali, it's your time to shine. Japan's Okay, let me uh, <laughs> let me just limber up here, boys. What do you want to know about intellectual property law in Japan? Well, you know, because you're an expert here, I'm going to probably quote you against your will because you're because you, I did, you didn't say off the record because you are on the record. Um, <laughs> if the FCC went to battle with um, the, the Tokyo Organizing Olympic Committee about this. What do you think the odds are that they would win? So what's interesting about Japan is Japan doesn't have any provision for parody in either copyright or trademark law. There's, there's, there's two ways in which this logo is protected, right? One as a work of, of art, right? That's copyright law. And one as the logo for the Olympics, which is trademark law. And neither has a parody exception. Most intellectual property law around the world is basically the same. And they normal, normally achieve the same outcomes with a just with different ways of getting there. So, for example, while you might not have a parody defense, you might have a fair use doctrine. And parody might be one of the exceptions under fair use, right? But what's interesting about Japan is Japan also doesn't have a fair use doctrine. So a fair use doctrine basically says you might have infringed the mark, right? So you might have uh, created... Uh, something which is sufficiently similar that it, it infringes copyright. And the test in Japan is whether it has the same ruiji say, like ruiji, like similarity yeah, of ruiji yeah. say. Yeah. And so obviously here you'd say the ruiji say is takai, right? It's, it means that they're functionally very, very similar. You'd notice they're the same. But it falls under an exception that the copyright law nevertheless says, well, it's, it, it is infringing, but there's a reason why we still want people to be able to copy it. So for example, right? Under the fair use doctrine, education is a very standard one. So it's not illegal to take a photograph and put it in a textbook 
uh, because we want people to be using photographs for educational purposes. <laughs> and so Japan is a, like Japan's pretty hot on this. Actually, they're better than other countries. Even this year, they've created a new fair use like exception for in response to COVID. So textbooks can now be used digitally on like on Zoom lessons without infringing copyright. So like generally, Japan's pretty hot on this. But there is a. Uh, basically no protection for parody and actually japan is probably behind other countries in terms of allowing parody the most famous case i remember is 2003 um you know the 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 puma logo where there's like the, the sporting um, the athletic wear yes puma, like yeah, sneakers right? and yeah I, I i have a pair of red pumas don't even ask why but yes i'm <laughs> And so there, there was, there was a case where someone uh, replaced the, the the puma and put a bear right and changed the p to a k and so they created a joke logo of Kuma, yeah. right? Which yeah, is it, really cute. It's kind of like a play on words, Kuma, Puma, unless you pronounce Puma like Ali does, and then it just doesn't work. Sure, right. Uh, but Say forget, Puma you, again, you, Ali. Say Puma again. Look, well, um, you know, the legal <laughs> test is, is visual similarity. So, <laughs> so, um, and so anyway, so this, right, I think if this were in the UK, that would be allowed, right? It's obviously a joke. It's obviously someone, you know, creating <laughs> something cute. Uh, but J the Japanese court said, no, this would not be allowed, uh, basically because they're, they're similar enough. They're similar enough and uh, customers may be confused. Plus, you're basically kind of coattail riding on the goodwill that, that Puma has developed in the marketplace. So in this particular instance, no parody exception. I think that's a fairly obvious case of parody. Therefore, my conclusion is Japan has very weak parody laws. There's a good chance a judge, particularly given the context of the Olympics and all the goodwill that has been lost with this brand, I think there's a pretty good chance a judge would side with the Olympic Committee and not the Foreign Correspondents Club. Ali, I want to ask because you mentioned that who's the target? You know, who who are you making fun of with this parody? Can we remember that this is not the first issue of copyright infringement with the Tokyo Olympic logo? <laughs> is there is there a legal argument to be made that by doing some meta copyright infringement, you are taking the piss of the original Tokyo Olympic logo, which was copyright infringement? Well, annoyingly, the way copyright law works is an infringing work can itself be copyrightable. And the reason why the law has to be this way is because there's no system of registration for copyright normally. So th that is to say, because copyright just happens if you've created a work and there's no way of checking if that work itself is infringing. Uh, yeah, technically, I mean, I'd love a lawyer to try that. I mean, that, I think it'd be really funny to yeah. try. Uh, but I'm afraid the boring legal answer is no, despite the fact that the Olympic logo itself was clearly plagiarized. Um, I, mean, I mean, maybe the coronavirus itself can, can say, hang on a minute, you've copied me. You've copied my <laughs> molecular structure. But you're saying basically there would probably be a, a loss for the FCCJ if they went to court. Obviously, this is copyright infringement. Enough of the work has been copied for this to be an infringing work. So mm -hmm. that threshold has clearly been met. So the question now is, well, is this permitted under some exception? The way that Japanese law works typically, and this is also true in this instance, is they give a, an exhaustive list of exceptions. Unlike some other legal systems which say, well, if you have some reasonable use, then we'll allow it. What Japan likes to do is have its legislators saying, this specific exception is okay. This specific exception is 
okay. This specific exception is okay. Because this doesn't fall neatly into one of these exceptions, I think there's a chance this would be a very long legal battle mm. and you'd lose loads of money. This is not legal advice. Thank you. Do you think the real issue here is whether or not they evaluated the case and felt that they would lose if they were being accused of copyright infringement? Do you think that was the real reason to pull it? Yes. I think the real reason is that they feared punitive lawsuits. The way it was described to me is that, you know, the Olympic Committee, you know, in that wonderful sort of sontaku, like will let you decide for yourself sort of open-ended kind of Yakuza fashion of saying, you know, like, oh, I would be very upset if you didn't take this logo down. Um, right. Except instead of threatening, you know, to actually beat up the FCCJ, it was the, the threat of a possible lawsuit. Yeah. And a punitive lawsuit, even if you win, you lose. Yep. Uh, so, you know, nobody and the FCC just not have the money to, to, to take a body blow like that. And there's a lot of dissension within the FCCJ about the decision to pull this cover, right? Yeah, it was it was literally done in the like in the cover of the night. Like, you know, it's like, oh, there's going to be a press conference tomorrow on this. No, because it's the middle of COVID. You know, it, it's kind of like Abe trying to sneak through the public prosecutor laws and in the middle of this and someone catching them. Except we didn't really catch them. Was you know the, the classic uh, what is the phrase kajiba no durobo like the thief the thief at the at scene the, of a fire, of a fire. Yeah. yeah so the president of the FCCJ came under criticism because he's being accused of having a conflict of interest because he is apparently a member of the Tokyo Olympic Committee's media commission. Yes, and he has said that he had no idea he was a member of that commission. That's <laughs> hilarious. Uh, even though there are apparently pictures of him at a meeting oh. of that commission, which which kind of reminds me of, you know, only our Japanese only, only Japanese polit- political wogs are going to get this, but uh, it kind of reminds me of the prime minister saying, like, I have no idea who this prosecutor Kurokawa is. I've never met him alone in my life. And then, you know, a year ago on his calendar, it's like meeting with Kurokawa. You know, one hour. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of in that level like well maybe it just has a really bad memory like twice he didn't remember he's part of the committee and he doesn't remember going to the committee meetings his response was i was surprised to know i am a member there is no payment or privileges whatsoever from the olympic committee for the fccj president so i if he's not getting paid for it i guess it's not worth remembering yeah <laughs> Exactly. It's like, give me some money. Give me some money. Maybe I'll remember you. It, it, it is so awarded. I was surprised to find that I'm a member. It's not like I didn't know. There's a difference between I was surprised to find. Like I was, I was surprised to find myself on your podcast. It's not but it's the difference. <laughs> like, I did. I, I don't know, Bobby. I, I mean, know, I, I've I, never met him. <laughs> to be fair, we were pretty surprised that you decided to come on too. One thing that really undermined your credentials as a top investigative journalist is that you did no due diligence into us two. Um, <laughs> I listen to your podcast. This is much, about as much due diligence. It exists. This is what I need to do. <laughs> and actually, there was a brief period uh, between uh, Christmas and New Year where it didn't exist and no one noticed. Uh- <laughs> one other issue I'd like to think about here is how counterproductive was this decision by the Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee to go after this logo? They didn't want it published, but it's brought so much more attention to the logo itself. I think you said the the number one shimbun I saw in an article has a circulation of a thousand people. Yeah. So that's potentially a thousand people who would have seen this cover, this logo. 
And the Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee, by insisting that it be pulled, has actually brought so much more attention to this logo. It's all yeah. over the Japanese Twitter sphere now. I mean, literally by being on this podcast, it has doubled the number of people that have heard of it. If everyone in the Correspondence Club that reads that newspaper uh, doesn't listen to this podcast. I saw a tweet from, I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Do you know this guy, Reedy, the guy who covers Japan for Bloomberg? Geroid? Geroid Reedy? No, he, I don't know. He tweeted, uh, I mean, it's likely I never would have seen this image if it wasn't for the Tokyo 2020 complaints, and I'm a member of the FCCJ. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really like the number one Shimbun. And, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, since the editor has quit in protest over, uh, in a protest of the FCCJ caving down on this, I'm actually considering raising my hand to edit that thing because now, thanks to Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee, we have readers. Um, Please remind people the number one shimbu is available for download on the FCCJ website. So, if if you don't if you don't have that many readers, then what does the number one refer to? The number one refers to the very first newspaper we've ever made at the FCCJ. The number one shimbu. So maybe now that the editors quit, we'll have to have a number two shimbu. But would you really want to read a newspaper called the number two shimbu? Because number one is number one is okay, but number two just sounds really disgusting. I don't know. Number two sounds like it's more appropriate for reading a newspaper. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, I, I think a couple months ago in, in March, I can think of a time when everyone would have been very happy to have a copy of the number one chimpoon, even though the paper is a little is a little glossy and not very <laughs> Brian, Brian, in case you've forgotten, that was a that was a toilet paper joke. That was a toilet paper shortage joke. Toilet I mean, paper shortage joke. Are you going to do anything else for your application for editorship other than literally shit on the newspaper? <laughs> uh, uh, you know. I don't think there's a lot of people raising their hands for this position, so um, we'll see. No, I mean, it is uh, it does have some really good articles. We do have a budget. The FCCG is still functioning as an organization, so somebody's got to do it. And, uh, you know, it would be nice to be actually editing other people's work instead of writing. I, and I've never well, been like – I've never really been an editor yet, so I've been like, you know. Jake, with respect, you haven't really strengthened your application from, uh, well, it's basically toilet paper to, well, someone's got to do it. <laughs> okay, let me rephrase this and please leave this in the edit. Um, <laughs> the great work done at the number one shimpun needs to be carried on by someone who actually gives a fuck about freedom of the press. And that would be me. Um, so if they pay me anything at all, I'd be happy to do it. <laughs> and if they don't pay you, you will nevertheless take up the editorship. Oh, if, if I, if I, but no, you'll I, just claim that you never were. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> number one shimpun, I've never... I, I had no, I, how strange that uh, my name is associated with this newspaper. So, Jake, do you think that this story has raised the profile of the FCCJ again? Do you think it's it's done anything for it in terms of its relevance? It depends on how that is played. Like, the FCCJ as an organization has played it badly. If this motley crew of ex-FCCJ members and present-day journalists that I've assembled to write this protest letter um, succeeds in getting reporters without borders involved and uh, an Olympic Committee, International Olympic Committee responds, then yes, we may actually heighten the profile of the FCCJ and we may make them aware that it is an organization disliked by the powers that be for speaking the harsh truth and sometimes the funny truth. Because uh, coronavirus and the Olympics are very much intertwined. Um, 
on a personal level, I'm so pissed off at the Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee, even though I've written three or four articles about what a folly the Olympics are. Now I want to know more. So thank you guys, because I think a lot of journalists feel the same way. It's like, okay, if you're going to, if you want to get into a pissing contest, like we're, we're, you know, this doesn't dissuade us from writing critical stuff about how the Olympics is going to be played. And if you are going to get into a pissing contest, then do make sure that you line the floor with something to make sure that it doesn't stain. Uh, I can recommend a newspaper for that. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode 37 of Japan by River Cruise. If you're new to the podcast, then please do subscribe to us. We have a new episode every single week, which you can download direct from japanbyrivercruise.com. And if you're old to the podcast, then please don't forget that there is an option to buy us a coffee. Please remember that we did have an exceptionally good jingle this week, and I paid for it, and this episode is currently losing us money. So on that basis buymeacoffee.com forward slash Japan by River Cruise if you enjoyed us. Thank you very much to our guest this week, Jake Edelstein. Jake, despite the fact that you are our nemesis and we hate you, I uh, had a really uh, fun conversation. It was really it was really fun. Like the superficiality, politeness of Japan is one of the things that makes it pleasant. Um, now I'm going to plug my own website, japansubculture.com, and encourage listeners to listen to your podcast, mostly the episode that I'm on. Um, and then after that, you know, it's sort of ambivalent. I mean, if, if if there was ever a more pointless plug for a podcast on the very podcast they've just listened to, uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, listen again. Doesn't you do anything for again. our download I, numbers. I, 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 I'm probably going to be back. So I'm sort of, you know, building a building a base on your show. <laughs> this is a very Yakuza method through the back door, just slowly infiltrating, making it seem like you're our friend. And then boom, it's, all of a sudden it's the J.K. Edelstein Weekly. Oh! he's rebranded it to the number one podcast we hate him thanks again brian if this is the first time that you've heard of jake edelstein you've got a lot to catch up on you can find him on twitter at at mark jake edelstein thanks for listening and we'll see you next week